Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening. I'm Yvonne Stapp, and I welcome you to Contemporary Science Issues and Innovations. Tonight, we discuss the current war on science in the U.S. Our guest, Andrew Rosenberg, is director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Dr. Rosenberg's expertise is represented by decades of scientific leadership in government, including as top scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as well as by his academic contributions and his leadership at Conservation International and other organizations. Dr. Rosenberg's understanding of the intersection between science and policymaking is especially valuable now. He's consistently warned about the consequences of this denial and distortion of scientific facts. And last Friday, the Trump White House dismissed the significance of the administration's own report on the climate change crisis. So tonight, Dr. Rosenberg discusses this and other attacks on science, plus the long-range global impacts of this sort of ignorance and how the public must act to change the situations. We are very honored to welcome Andrew Rosenberg. Welcome, sir. It's a pleasure. Okay. And could you start out with some examples for people of this kind of an attack on science? In Sure. So in the Trump administration, we really have seen an unprecedented set of attacks on specific science issues as well as the process by which science informs mm. our public policy. And let me explain what I mean by that. There are very specific issues where the administration has set aside um, the scientific evidence and mm -hmm. moved ahead with the policy without considering that evidence in full. In many public policy issues, you can think of science as providing the sideboards. Mm -hmm. We all understand that policy decisions have other um, inputs, including you know, political sentiment, public sentiment, and so on. But science provides the sideboards. Most of our laws say that you need to use the best available science in making your decisions. An example of that in this administration is that early on there was a two-year report that was developed on the impacts on child development of a pesticide called Yes. And uh, the administrator of the EPA, Scott Pruitt at the time, set aside that report and made a decision not to move forward with mm -hmm. proposing regulations mm -hmm. on chlorpyrifos. He also made a decision not to move forward um, with a scientific report, based on a scientific report on the impact of chlorpyrifos mm -hmm. and other pesticides mm -hmm. on endangered species. Mm -hmm. He set that aside and made a decision to continue to use that chemical. In other cases, they have um, either suppressed or ignored reports of impacts of substances like formaldehyde, which are very known, well known to be cancer-causing chemicals, or have allowed, despite the current evidence, um, an increase actually in the amount of emissions right. of hazardous yeah. air pollutants. Yeah. So what they're doing in these cases is they're choosing to ignore the science, and often for very specific reasons, 
at the behest of very specific industries or special interest players. Right. Another thing in there is like the climate issue, which is, uh, I think we're the only country of 196, 197 countries that signed the Paris uh, Climate Agreement and we've withdrawn, but this resistance to the climate science is disastrous, but uh, what's your Well, I mean, view? this administration has decided to withdraw. We actually haven't withdrawn yet. Yeah, I we understand. Still, we still are, are bound by the Paris Climate Accord, yeah. um, even though those are voluntary uh, limits that yeah. are, are set within, uh, in terms of our own actions. So um, we are bound by the Paris Climate Accord because there is a phase-out period. Right. But that's an example of setting aside the science. There's a very large body of evidence around climate change, the impacts of emissions of um, greenhouse gases. Um, the administration decided to ignore that science and withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. And as you note, um, we are the only country that is moving to withdraw. Out of, out of a global agreement yes. of this kind. Right. The other kinds of attacks on science that I think um, are more difficult to see are those attacks on the process, processes by which science comes into our public policy. So there's the individual issues like chlorpyrifos or climate, but there also is this overall process about how science informs policy. Mm -hmm. And this administration in many cases has either dismissed or ignored science advisory panels yes. of outside advisors. They have um, put restrictive rules on what type of science the agencies can consider. They have changed the rules that define things such as um, the impacts of uh, hazardous chemicals uh, to only refer to direct impacts, yeah. not so-called legacy or long-term impacts, yes. and other actions like that that really hinder in the long term the way that science will inform, inform our public decision making. Right. You pointed out somewhere that uh, the civil service, to an extent, even under an assault, can keep going in many respects. Right. You just pointed out that uh, there are some things where it's delayed. They can say, okay, we're going to knock aside these regulations, but say on mining, uh, sure. uh, uh, pollution regulations, but they may not be able to do it immediately. So right. you might have a few years there. But then you also said uh, somewhere that the, the civil service of career people can keep on going. How true is that just now when they're trying to gut all these jobs and so on? So um, it is certainly true that the professional service, the civil service are really the professionals in the yes, field that right. stay there through administrations. That I used to be a civil servant. I was not a political appointee. I was a career official at uh, NOAA, National Oceanic mm -hmm. and Atmospheric Administration, working on fisheries issues and marine resources generally. Um, that's the professional staff mm -hmm. um, all across the government. Mm -hmm. And the intention is not simply to have continuity, but also to have people who are steeped in the work. Right. So at the Environmental Protection Agency, you have people who have deep expertise in um, you know, energy systems and pollution that comes from various kinds of sources, in public health issues. It is our premier public health agency, for example. Mm -hmm. that, professional staff are critically important to the public policies that we make. Mm -hmm. Now, 
it's true that they're still there, and largely to the extent that they can, they're still doing the important work that they do. That includes the scientists who are mm -hmm. still doing mm -hmm. research, are still providing technical advice, and so on. Um, it also includes the policy experts who really understand how the policy mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. um, any administration can uh, choose not to listen to that professional staff. I don't think we have ever seen an administration um, turn away from the professional staff or shut them out of the process in the same way that we at least have heard uh, is happening in this administration. And we have surveyed scientists in 16 agencies. Yes, the Union uh, of Concerned yeah, Scientists right, does right. A, a scientist survey. Now, there also is the case that there are many, many people leaving agencies, many mm -hmm. of them retiring. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, others mm -hmm. are leaving for other reasons. And there's two underlying forces there. One is that much of the federal workforce is my age. They have mm -hmm. the opportunity to retire. They've served their you know, 20 or 30 years or they're at the minimum retirement age, which um, in the federal service to, um, you know, that they agreed to in their original contracts and for their pensions and they can retire and they've decided that they want to. So we have a bump in retirements that would come because of the aging workforce. <laughs> But also, many of those people are still very active, and in this administration we have heard, anecdotally, so not systematically, but anecdotally, we have heard that many people say, look, I still want to do this work, I can't do the That's work, right. I cannot right. use my skills right. in the current administration, yeah. I'm going to go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. and. You know, it's not because they no longer want to do public service, it's because they feel like they can't do public right. service mm -hmm. in the agencies. Right. And then the final thing that is very concerning for these agencies is that there is very little hiring of young professionals. Mm -hmm. And that means that, in a sense, the agencies are being hollowed out. Yes. It is certainly the case that agencies thrive on new talent coming sure. in. Sure. And that new talent is, in turn, mentored by the senior people who are in each of those agencies. And so you want our young professionals to view public service as an important right, place right, to spend right, at least right. part of their career. You don't have mm -hmm. to spend your whole career there. Mm -hmm, I didn't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it, that does a disservice to our government in the long right, term. Because right, after all, the, the government <laughs> is there for you know, to serve the public interest. Right. You might not like their decisions. I don't like all their decisions, mm -hmm. but ultimately you need the professional staff. Right, right. Can you, uh, people may not be aware of all the different agencies, but I think we hear about the EPA, the Environmental sure. Protection Agency on a regular basis, but are there other, that one has suffered tremendously. Yes. Interior uh, Department has suffered a, a, a lot. Is there any other agency or department that uh, has been really afflicted? Well, I think the Department of Energy is yeah. certainly of yes. concern. Right, right. Um, there are concerns in other, you know, all across the government um, in in every department, from the Defense Department to you know Health and Human Services, um, to the independent agencies like um, Food and Drug Administration, certainly right. there's great concern in the Department of Agriculture, yes, which is a huge that's purview. Huge. Yeah, um, it, it's probably not obvious to many people, but there are science scientists working in all of these agencies. Right. Department of Energy has a huge scientific yeah, program. Right. Uh, because they deal with everything from nuclear weapons yes. to nuclear energy yeah. to 
other forms Especially of energy. Especially nuclear, yeah. And, and, well, and, you know, they deal with renewable energy. They yeah, deal uh, with yeah, energy yeah. efficiency mm -hmm. standards. Uh, just a, a very broad range um, of issues. They manage the national laboratories, which are a critical national resource uh, around the country. And so the Department of Energy has a huge science workforce. Of course, NOAA and NASA do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And while they are perhaps in better shape, as FDA is, than the EPA, there still are challenges. Okay. And part of that is because the ethos of this administration is not to respond to the scientific information and certainly not to the professional staff. Um, it is, you know, very much a top-down driven political mm -hmm, ideology mm -hmm. um, that says, you know, we want to remove regulations, we want to remove what are viewed incorrectly, in my view, as barriers to business, um, and, you know, that agencies are there to serve the business community as opposed to the public interest. Okay, I was and just going to ask you, what is the prime mover in that? It is in the end uh, an interest in profit first. Is that the idea, well, do you think? or Profit or, or um, relieving restrictions regardless of the potential impact. Okay. So, uh, you know, there has, it would be easy to say this is a chaotic in, administration and lots of things are happening kind of without some overall plan. I think that's a mistake. I mm -hmm. mean, mm -hmm. many of the actions that are taken um, have long been pushed by um, very, very conservative interests, by... Um, major corporations. By major corporations, but more often by, I would say, than corporations, by uh, trade organizations, which okay. often take more extreme positions than even their member very companies. You know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has long had a list of what they call barriers to business and have pushed issues such as restrictions on science and changing science advisory boards. The American Petroleum Institute, mm -hmm. which is a trade organization, the National Manufacturers mm -hmm. Association, as well as Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, and others, um, the coal industry certainly have had lists of regulations they wanted to remove because they hindered essentially profits um, for some of their companies. I mm -hmm. think it's a mistake to say that all companies want to follow that line, but mm -hmm. the trade mm -hmm. organizations are pushing the sort of more extreme views. And the difficulty with that is that we have seen over and over again that while many you know, companies try to behave responsibly, actually the entity that is representing the public interest at the table in these uh, regulatory discussions is the government. Mm -hmm. So any individual person doesn't have the opportunity to stand up and say, no, not in my neighborhood. You can do that, but the person you're saying that to is the government mm -hmm. in most mm -hmm. cases, mm -hmm. sometimes to a, an individual company itself. So regulations which no one seems to like are actually there to protect public health right. and safety in the right. environment. Increasingly, they, yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean they, I'm not claiming they always do it well right, or efficiently, but it's sort of the only game in town because it is not the case that um, companies are going to do this on their own. Some will, some won't. Mm -hmm. If you leave it up to voluntary action, then you're rewarding the bad actors. Right. And you're in some ways penalizing those people who want to 
you know, be more responsible to, to the public interest. So regulations have that role. Regulation is really a public health and safety protection. How about other nations like the EU? Do uh, You know, they've had the problem with pushback from Monsanto and so sure. on too. But it seems to me that there has been more progress along those lines. Also, that the civil service may be, what do I want to say, more stable in those nations. I don't think that the civil service is more stable, but it has a different role in parliamentary okay. systems than in, to, in um, the American system of government. You don't get to throw government. them out. <laughs> well, be, the, it, it's not so much that. It's that um, in a parliamentary system, it's often the case that governments change as yes, parties right, take right, power right, and right. coalitions are made. But what is um, distinctly different is that in our American system, when a new administration comes in at the federal level, they can appoint political officials yes. quite deep into the agencies. In a parliamentary system, the only political appointments are the ministers. Yes, okay, that's and what so I wanted to so you're not have. managing the individual agency actions right. in nearly the same way. Okay. Um, in, a, in addition to that, in places like the EU, I would say on some uh, rules and regulations to protect public health, safety, and the environment, they are much stronger than we are, and in yes. some cases they're weaker. Yeah, okay. Um, and, but they have a different response to regulation in the public. So unfortunately, th there has been a concerted attempt to build a narrative um, in this country that says that regulation is bad and government yes. is bad. Right. And you they know, don't feel that way all, in you know, Europe. Yeah, yeah. Ronald Reagan's own line of government that's is right. the problem. Yeah. Well, Right. That that's a great soundbite, but right. isn't true. Here, but I don't think it would be accepted it, it in a lot of and, places in the world. And right. so, you know, you have people making decisions based on that narrative. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, maybe it seems a little off mark to, to make the comment, but, you know, watch any movie or television show and watch, with the exception of potentially the military or the police, mm -hmm. every government official, every government employee is portrayed as either evil, evil, corrupt, scheming, yeah. or lazy yeah. in this right, country. Right, right. So it's a nope. whole PR thing. Then, yeah. you know, um, actually read about, read Michael Lewis's books mm -hmm. about yes. what happens yes. in government yes. agencies yes. where people work incredibly hard. That's right. They are true professionals in their field. Yeah. They have enormous responsibility. You know, I used to, when I worked as deputy director in, in uh, NOAA Fisheries, I would assume that I had about, you know, roughly an 80-hour work week. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes it was 70. Sometimes it would drop down to 40, but mm -hmm. very rarely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was vacation. <laughs> and, and that's because there's just a huge number of issues that come yeah, up. And that right. was a small agency. Yeah. That was a tiny agency. And so, you know, th these are very difficult jobs because you're trying to balance an enormous number of competing interests, but your fundamental um, job is to implement the laws that Congress passed. You don't, right. that whole, there's also a whole narrative which is completely false that says agencies just make up laws and make up yeah, authorities right, and they're right, making right. laws, they go, you could never do that. You're sued on every issue. Yeah. And every right. judge is going to say you don't have the authority to do that. Right. This administration has said, oh, well, we don't really have the authority to do anything, for example, on climate. Well, the Supreme Court has already said that yes. they do. 
yes. But they're yes, still yes. saying, well, we don't have the authority, you have to go back to Congress because it's a delay tactic. Yes, exactly that. Uh, one more thing on this, the civil service uh, and these agencies uh, in parliamentary systems everywhere else <laughs> is that um, I'm not sure that a prime minister could appoint anybody he or she wanted to to direct an agency. We have that situation and it can be somebody who is going to go in as a wrecking ball and this this administration has excelled in that, but I don't know if that's true elsewhere. So in a parliamentary system, the people who are appointed have to be elected officials. Okay. So, so they have to be members of parliament. Okay. Um, and so... Um, Do they have to be qualified to... Well, no, they can be appointed by the prime minister, okay. but, but in a particular field, but they're overseeing the ministry. They're not doing okay. the day-to-day -day technical work. Okay. In our system, some of the appointed officials, first of all, they, they're not elected, they're appointed, and they, some of them have to be confirmed by the Senate, who in principle should be questioning their qualifications. Okay. And in some cases, the laws specify the qualifications of people who should be appointed. Now, this administration has, in, again, ignored that. They attempted to appoint a chief scientist at the Department of Agriculture yes. who had no science credentials. Right. Right, um, right, and okay. so the, the the president has the authority to nominate someone who is not qualified. The Senate has the responsibility to actually then determine whether that nomination is appropriate. Okay. Now, unfortunately, when you have um, the political circumstance that we've had for the last two years, the majority party, the Republicans, have not pushed back on many of those mm -hmm, appointments, mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. some exceptions. Mm -hmm. So one example is that we and many other groups strongly objected to the appointment of a man named Michael Dorson mm -hmm. um, to head the uh, chemicals office at the Environmental Protection Agency because of the work he had done for industry for a long time. Um, eventually, uh, several Republican senators also objected to his appointment because of uh, work he had done in North Carolina and their concerns around military bases in North Carolina and he had to withdraw his nomination. Okay. The person at the Department of Agriculture who was not qualified ultimately had to withdraw his nomination, although you can argue whether the nomination was withdrawn because he wasn't qualified or because he had links to the Russia investigation. Oh, I see. <laughs> and so, you know, there's lots of different forces at play in, uh, yeah, in all right, of these Right, I things. understand. But it just seems like a thoroughly unprofessional uh, right. uh, approach at a time when the science is so important and the public safety, the public health. And I want to ask about that as a matter of fact now is what will be the effects of long-term, especially when you start rolling back uh, uh, environmental regulations, of, of toxin regulations in particular, right. and we don't even know how this is going to play out two decades from now. When you start rolling right. that back and preventing these regulations, what will happen? Can you so, reverse things? Well, so first of all, the rollback of regulations has become a guiding principle of this administration. Yes. And often without real concern with what those regulations do, mm -hmm. and often with a false narrative. So mm -hmm. one of the one of the false narratives is 
that this will free up small business. Mm -hmm, well, that mm -hmm. is only true if you consider Exxon to be a small business. Yes, right. <laughs> or Murray Energy to be a small business. Yes, it, right. It, or Monsanto. Or yeah, <laughs> it, 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 the rollback of regulations right. has not really in any way um, uh, focusing on small business. Especially it, those concerned with the health and that's right. uh, environment. So in addition to that, um, the, the rollback of regulations is essentially, it only makes sense if you say there are no more threats that we need to be concerned about. Therefore, we should only roll back regulations. There's the mythology that there's all these regulations out there that are completely unnecessary right. and don't do anything. Right. Okay. I have yet to have anyone in my own field in, in natural resource management. I've only had one that has been presented to me as unnecessary and it doesn't really do anything, and it's a regulation on whale oil. Okay, how much is it actually costing anybody mm -hmm. since we don't mm -hmm. have a whale oil industry? Mm -hmm. It's just not the case that there are all these regulations that are out there that you don't need because many, many, many regulations, most, are continually revised in the system. Now, we might decide that we have better ways to protect public interest, mm -hmm. but it's not the case that there are regulations that are just out there for no purpose. And again, we have a constructed narrative that's been pushed very hard by some special interests that say regulations are only there because the government wants to impose costs on industry. They don't really have, you'll notice right. they never talk about benefits to the public. Right. But if you look at any analysis of the regulatory system, the benefits of those regulations to the public are always huge compared to the cost to, to industry. And the cost to industry are often overestimated because industry innovates, which is exactly what they should do. So there are long-term effects of regulatory rollbacks. Yes, you can put them back in place, but taking a step back on things like hazardous pollutants, there, right. on toxic contaminants, on when toxins. When we're full of them by that time, yeah, right. On, on toxins in consumer products. Right, right. You know, those pr consumer products aren't the ones that are around for one year. They stay right. in the system for a really long time. That's right. And yeah. so there are long-term effects on people where they live, in their water table, in the air they yeah. breathe, in the products that they use, in the way that um, uh, industries you know, use their, prof uh, their uh, industrial processes. So all of those things have long-term impacts, even if you are able to put regulations back in place. But I would say that the story that there's been this huge rollback of regulations is a little bit premature. Okay. There has been a rollback, but many of those things have been challenged in court, and this administration is losing more often than right. not. Right. That was the next question. As a matter of fact, is that uh, it seems as though the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union crew, well, I can't remember how the, uh, yeah. the uh, that has, there we go, there, and, uh, yes, uh, have brought suits against the government in some of these cases. Uh, that seems to be an effective measure. I don't know where it will go in the end, but that is like a newish strategy for taking these problems so, on? Well, ACLU and crew have taken action around, as you would guess, civil liberties and civil rights um, and on ethics issues specifically okay. as their names imply, Citizens for Responsibility mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. Ethics in Washington and American Civil mm -hmm. Liberties Union. Other organizations 
like Earth Justice. Yes. Um, Natural Resources Defense Council, Environmental Defense Fund, and the Union of Concerned yeah, Scientists, know, which is not something that traditionally we have not been particularly litigious, like, uh -huh. but now we are engaged in a number of lawsuits, um, have used the courts um, as an accountability measure. And it can be effective. Uh, the problem is it takes a long time. Yes. And also yes. the remedy yeah. in most cases, so the legal remedy if a judge decides an agency has acted improperly is to send it back to the agency to do it again. Ah, uh, and so you could go through another so, cycle of this yeah, delay or, you could go or something or other. And, and often the agency will say, okay, we'll do it again. We'll, we'll just do it a little bit differently. So let me give you an example of that. Um, chemical, large chemical facilities uh, are required to uh, implement a set of provisions under something called a risk management program to protect the communities around those facilities mm -hmm. and to prevent major chemical accidents and disasters of which there are something like 30,000 a year in the country. Mm -hmm. um, those provisions are things like providing information to first responders, providing information to members of the community about you know, the kinds of chemicals that are there, providing uh, evacuation plans and, and other things of that sort. Um, those rules haven't been revised for more than 25 years, mm -hmm. but suffice it to say that you know, information services and other things have moved along quite mm -hmm, far mm -hmm, in 25 mm -hmm. years. The Obama administration, right at the end of the administration, um, put into place new rules that would improve, the, you know, there's better um, rules, including requiring companies to look for inherently safer technologies than, you know, the cheapest one or the ones they might choose, but to try to be safer. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration immediately put a halt to the right, implementation it, yeah. of that rule. The court said, no, you can't do that. We mm -hmm. sued them mm -hmm. along mm -hmm. with many mm -hmm. community mm -hmm. groups mm -hmm. and others. And the court said, no, you can't just stop a rule because you don't like it. There is a process by which you have to go to public comment, propose comment, finalization, and so on. So they, the Trump administration then said, okay, because the court ordered them to do that. And they proposed that in this risk management program, um, basically a much, much weaker set of rules, which went along exactly with what the industry had requested. Um, and in that rule, right up front, these are rules to prevent chemical disasters. They said, our proposal is to remove all preventative measures. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you have a rule to prevent disasters with no preventative measures. There in you it. go. <laughs> and now we'll go back around the circle and sue mm -hmm, again mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. So court action can often take a long time, but it's important as an accountability measure. Right. What about at it, it, this time? It seems as though... Um, mobilization in the public is also important, that having the pressure from the public might change things. Well, what's your opinion about that? And then I want to ask about the role of the union concerned scientists sure. in that regard, too. So, uh, you know, my program is the Center for Science and Democracy. Right. If people don't participate in the democracy, it doesn't work. Right, but there's and, also and maybe a, a, a responsibility, if you're right. There if certainly that, is a responsibility, right. and it goes beyond voting, which yeah. is a critical right. um, responsibility, right. of course. And um, we believe that people need to speak out 
uh, to their elected officials and to the agencies that are supposed to be serving their interest. If the only people that the agencies hear from are the industries that they regulate as opposed to the people that they're regulating on behalf of, then they tend to be captured by those industries, and we've seen that to an extreme degree ah. in this administration. And it is effective if people do let their representatives know they, they don't necessarily have to get out on the streets. They just That's need right. to raise their voices. They need to make their opinions known or their views known. They do need to do that through their elected officials, and through. particularly those who have... Um, expertise like scientists also need to respond to the opportunity to comment that every agency is required right. to um, provide for every action that they take. Every regulatory action has mm -hmm. a public comment period. So one of the things that we do in Union of Concerned Scientists is we um, encourage people to comment on agency actions and we give them guidance on how to comment in an effective way. Right. Because that okay. also becomes important later on in terms of reviewing whether the agency action met the legal standard. So everyone is a constituent in this country. You okay. have elected officials at the state, local, state, and federal level, all of whom Believe it or not, in our current political climate, they still respond to constituency. Yes. It's okay. very powerful. Okay. That, I think, is one of the things that the, we don't understand so well in the public, where you feel like, oh, I don't know enough about right. that or something or other. But the voice really matters. And the Union of Concerned Scientists in our last few minutes uh, is a prime organization for giving the information, for one thing, but also for sort of helping people move in this direction. Yeah. Okay. So Union of Concerned Scientists, we're actually celebrating our 50th anniversary in 2019. It started um, in Kendall Square. Yes. In by 1969 by um, physicists at MIT who were... Dr. Kendall. Cornell. Yes, <laughs> who were very concerned about the direction of the Vietnam War as right. well as the missile defense program. And we still work on those global security yes. issues. We're one of the few organizations that do, but there are still many, many issues around what our folks call existential threats. Yeah, and many um, of them now. And, yeah. and um, so we have an important role in um, raising awareness around those issues. But we also work on climate and energy, yes. which is our largest program and yeah. also a very important challenge um, for society. We work on um, food and, and, and the environment uh, with the goal of trying to as the director of the Food and Environment Program says, transform our food system to one that supports yeah. health yeah. as opposed right. to supporting right. disease. And maybe the planet too, yes. Um, we work on clean vehicles, which mm -hmm. is trying to decarbonize the transportation mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And we work on the Center for Science and Democracy on the role that science plays. So what we do as an organization with over 100,000 members is we try to connect scientists and those who care about science into the public policy process to speak out and to advocate. I don't believe, and we as an organization don't believe there's anything wrong with scientists also raising their voices as constituents Absolutely. and as advocates. Absolutely. It doesn't mean your no. research is any less. It doesn't right. mean that you are biased. It means you have an opinion, which right. we all do. Right. And so it is important for the public to be engaged and to do that to try to 
learn about the issues as much as they can. So we do an awful lot of public information, yes. our blog series, our podcast webinars, series, our webinars. Uh, yes. We also do webinars on training yes. scientists and activists on how they can be more effective. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, for example, we have uh, within my program what we call the science watchdogs with people who are engaging with key members of the Senate or the House as scientists and are watchdogging the administration and raising issues about the process by which science comes into decision making, speaking out as scientists but also as constituents. Right. We have science champions who are people who really care that science is a basis for our public policy decision making even though they are not scientists right. and they are speaking out to their elected officials and we've had some real success in doing yes. that. It's a little bit modeled on the indivisible, if you know that, yes. uh, model yes. of people being active locally. Right, we right. were very engaged in encouraging people to ask questions leading up to the midterm election. We don't support or oppose any particular candidate, but people being involved does change the system. There are many, many challenges within our political system, but it, we just cannot possibly succeed unless the citizenry itself is deeply right, engaged. Right. Uh, Thank you for that, and we have to close, but I want to emphasize that there isn't any better organization for, uh, for one, two things, the quality of information and the accessibility of, that, uh, of a number of issues. It's a major organization for the, the nuclear issues, uh, but for many issues, and it's very well done, and the other is this training of people that it is not necessary to feel like, oh, this is over my head. You can learn it, and we all need to uh, learn to participate in this way. And uh, well, thank it's you for that. much and appreciated. We that. have a, a really, it's a really, superb really organization. talented staff. Yes, very young, very energetic, right, um, and and extremely talented. So right. I really appreciate your saying that. Well, this is the. I really think it's the number one. Thank you very much for coming in and talking with us. And good luck. Thank you, everyone. I enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website, www.scienceforthepublic.org, for videos of all our events, lists of upcoming events, our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter, and timely science information.